Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm your host, Noah Rothbaum. Joining me today, as always, is my co-host, David Weidrich. Welcome. Hey, Noah. For a special edition of Life Behind Bars, special uh, Memorial Day episode. There's uh, certainly a lot to talk about when it comes to uh, soldiers and drinking and drinking during wartime. Uh, it's uh, Those things have always gone together as long as there has been drinking in wartime, which seems to be all of human history. Oh, there's a million anecdotes, and I'm probably underestimating the number there. <laughs> For, we'll, we'll keep it. We'll try to keep this to uh, yep. our normal length. <laughs> We're not going to turn to a Ken Burns length uh, podcast. No, of, well, uh, we'd need people to come in and do the funny voices also. <laughs> right, sure. Well, you've done it. You've at, at Tales. You've had you've 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 had a seminar uh, with Jeff Berry a couple of years ago. Yeah, Jeff and I did a, a long seminar with a lot of pictures, which unfortunately we can't show you right now. <laughs> but uh, we could we can bring up some of the anecdotes. There are a lot of different wars that have affected drinking, and you know, obviously, whether it's you know Dutch Courage with the War of the Roses mm-hmm. or the American Revolution, you know, disrupting the rum trade. But today we're going to focus primarily on on World War II and, and its effect upon drinking on the home front and also on the war front. Well, it's, it's a war that was more documented than any other and uh, also really affected the whole world and put stress on every society. Uh, I mean, for, for me, the, the, the things that I always bear in mind is uh, normal, normal rules don't apply during wartime. Just to use a recent example, you know, after the uh, horrifying events of uh, September 2001, if you walked around New York City for those months after that, every bar was packed. Everybody was in the bars. People needed to be with each other. They needed something to uh, round off the edge of the fear a little bit to, to, to fight the stress. And, uh, you know, alcohol is, uh, is uh, very effective in those things. Of course, it's also very addicting and dangerous. But in wartime, people don't really worry about the long-term effects of anything. Right. It's like short-term, get through this moment now. I'm scared. Some routine from before the war started, I think, is it's always comforting. It's always comforting, yeah. And that comradeship, you know, people together. There's a lot of social drinking, you know, yeah. where people will get together. There's also a lot of uh, of uh, individual drinking, too, for that matter. Sure. I mean, sure. if you look at what, – let's start – why don't we talk about the soldiers first? Yeah. Most armies had some kind of alcohol ration, not every army. The Italians, of course, had a really good one. They had wine, they had Campari, they had vermouth, they had, uh, uh, when in the fighting in, in North Africa in World War II, when the uh, British would overrun their camps, they'd find, you know, maybe not a lot of tank parts, but full <laughs> cases of wine and Campari right. and, and Digestivi and Amaros and all that stuff. So maybe that's going a little bit in, in, too far in one direction. Somehow I feel like none of that was put to waste. Uh, it was all used, no oh, doubt. It was all used, yeah. <laughs> Everybody learned to drink vermouth. <laughs> and that tradition, you know, goes back. I mean, obviously, you know, our, our soldiers, the British Army, for centuries have been given a ration of rum oh, yeah. or, you know, whiskey. Now, in the American Army during World War II, pro, there was still, you know, the, the hangover from Prohibition. There weren't a lot of official rations. Officers got bottles of whiskey. Huh. The enlisted men might get some beer every once right. in a while. But, you know, our soldiers are uh, very resourceful. Right. Sure. And found ways to uh, to uh, lubricate themselves. Absolutely. Uh, uh, when we were fighting again in Italy, they learned all learned to drink uh, that weird fruit juice known as vermouth. Even <laughs> if they weren't particularly happy with it, they would have preferred whiskey. 
but uh, they drank a lot of wine and stuff like that. In Normandy, they learned to drink uh, Calvados and uh, dug that up and drank it everywhere. The British Army still got a rum ration. And, th- and that lasted until the 70s. Yeah, well, in the Navy it did. The Army got, uh, I think it, it got cut out earlier, but the, ar- the Army, the rum ration was mostly when it was cold and raining, uh, which is like the whole Italian campaign. <laughs> Uh, and much of Normandy and uh, and Northwest Europe, you know, when they were fighting in Holland and uh, Belgium and all that. But uh, they would get this rich, funky uh, Guiana and Jamaican rum that uh, worked very well to uh, to cut the cold. Uh, other people got uh, less interesting rations. The Russians got a lot of vodka, of course, right. which, you know, that makes sense. There's an amazing story of a Polish guy who was drafted into the Red Army and right at the time in 1941 when the Germans invaded. And, uh, you know, the Germans' invasion was like alien bursting out of somebody's chest. I mean, it was, it was this horrifying thing that just burst right deep into Russia and everything was in chaos. And he's sitting around in a house a little behind the front lines with a group of officers, and they're all shockingly drunk on vodka, all the officers. And one of them says, let's play cuckoo. And what is cuckoo? It turns out uh, everybody gets drunk, which they'd already taken care of. Then uh, you take out your pistol, and then you turn out the lights in the room at night. And then somebody yells cuckoo, which is the Russian slang word for sniper, and ducks, and everybody tries to shoot in that direction. And it only stops when somebody gets hit. It's maybe a little, you know, <laughs> these are the inventors of right. Russian roulette. Right. So, <laughs> And this guy's like... Uh, a little bit beyond beer pong. He finds yeah. the the biggest uh, armoire in in the room, and you know stacks stacks of rice in front of it, and then do, does his one shot and dives for cover and hopes for the best. <laughs> but it's an amazing story. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. But you know it's wartime. People do that kind of thing. Wartime I mean, drinking. It's... There's there are guns everywhere, and uh, it's nuts. Perhaps a, a less scary drink than that was also, you know, Roman Coke was a was a huge drink for, for our Yeah, where you could so. get the Coke, when you could get the Coke yeah. it was, yeah. And what, what was it? Coca-Cola, I think, at the beginning of the war announced that wherever soldiers were, they would keep the price at five cents a bottle. Mm-hmm. So they sold something amazing, according to Wayne Curtis's book, and a bottle of rum, another Daily Beast contributor, but the book on Excellent rum book. history. Yeah. According to Wayne, it, you know, I think they sold something like, something like 10 billion Cokes were served during World War II. I imagine a lot of those were mixed with some kind of alcohol. Rum, torpedo fuel, right. whatever. I mean, in, in the Navy, the U.S. Navy was dry, which, uh, at least at sea, technically dry, which meant that people had to do things like take the uh, industrial alcohol that they used to uh, fuel torpedoes and uh, run that, or in the deepest parts of the ship set up their own little stills. And, uh, and, and, and you know, they had a lot of technicians on these ships. Sure. Who could run a still? It's not hard to run a still. So they, uh, they, there were ways around it, but uh, the top officers tried to set an example. There, there's a great story by this guy uh, from this guy uh, Henry Hopkins, who was the British Navy's attaché to the U.S. Pacific Fleet, right? And he's supposed to just go around and observe U.S. operations and report to England so they can learn something from it. And uh, he wants to go up to the Aleutian Islands where there was, you know, fighting, and uh, he's curious about the cold weather up there. And uh, he goes to see uh, this guy, Sock McMorris, who was the head of the Pacific Fleet. Socrates McMorris, like head of operations or something. Socrates was his nickname (laughs) because he was supposed to be really smart. 
and Sock goes, well, I'm not sending you up to the Aleutians. I'm sending you back to the Marshall Islands where he just came from. And this guy goes, why? Well, you've got to bring something to me to Admiral Lee, for me to Admiral Lee. And uh, the British guy goes, well, okay, I guess. Uh, what am I bringing? Five-pound can of honey. Why? Because according to Sock McMorris, the best old fashions are made with honey. You've got to <laughs> dissolve it in hot water first. Right. Then you use scotch. They didn't really have American right. whiskey. We'll get sure. to that. They had plenty of scotch. You use scotch, uh, bitters. They had bitters. And the honey. And then... Uh, of course, you can't do it on shipboard, but when on shore, you can build a campfire and do it right. when you're hanging out on the beach. And uh, you dissolve the, the sugar and the, wa- right. the, the honey in the water, add the bitters and the scotch. And then uh, one of the doctors, uh, ship's doctors, pulls the, our guy aside and says, don't forget to add the rum. <laughs> because it, it takes like a spoonful of funky rum, to you make know, it Navy rum, almost, to make it just right. <laughs> almost your own, your homemade drambouille. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really funny. Wow. And, and this guy Hopkins uh, said, you know, after being briefed in Washington for two months before going out to the Pacific, the only thing he learned was how to make an old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the Navy. Right. They were old-fashioned drinkers. It almost seems as if, the, depending upon where the soldiers and, and, and the sailors were, they their drinking habits sort of adapt to the local customs. And, oh, yeah. And they, they definitely become more worldly, you know, the, the, you know and when they come back. Obviously, they, they have palates where they've tried all types of things. They've tried sake. If they were in the Pacific, they were lucky to get it. Also, the Japanese used to poison the sake sometimes oh. and leave it behind. Right. So they learned to test it first. They learned to ferment uh, palm sap and make uh, tuba, sure. as they called it. Yeah. The, you know, the, yeah, and in Europe, they, they tried everything they could get their hands on, whatever they could capture from the Germans. Or yeah. There's a great uh, – som- sometimes, instead of adapting, they found ways to bring home right to them. Uh, after the Normandy invasion, uh, the Royal Air Force set up advanced fields in France, and these guys learned uh, their Spitfires had these, like, wing tanks – that carried extra fuel, they learned they could replace those with kegs of beer and fly them <laughs> over from England. And you go up to 30,000 feet, and it's really cold up there. Right. And you fly over the channel, and by the time you land, the beer is perfectly chilled. <laughs> and, they're, and they're pictures of these Spitfires with, with a keg hanging under each wing. <laughs> so they'd, you know, they'd, they'd fly back to England. They'd, they'd, they'd come back with a beer. Everybody would have a couple cold beers. And uh, their day job was so terrifying that, you know, fair enough. I mean, you kind of earned that. Or the Air Force equivalent of the beverage card, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Special <laughs> delivery. <laughs> the most the soldiers east in America were, that were going there, their pallets were fairly limited. I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of these things that we're talking about weren't really available at your local liquor store. I mean, most or, people had never yeah, heard of I them. Yeah, I mean, only or, fancy people drank yeah. vermouth and, you know, martinis and Manhattans. Right. Their average, you know, a factory worker type would drink a lot of beer in America and, you know, maybe some whiskey. The Americans, as the Germans were retreating, in one place they captured a huge warehouse full of booze, and it was kind of equal, equally divided between... Uh, Cointreau, Benedictine, cognac, and champagne, and a few other liqueurs. And they were like, well, we could drink all the cognac and the champagne. Then we'd be left with all this sweet stuff. And they pooled it all and made a formula. Uh, called, they called it B2C2, Benedictine and brandy. That's the two Bs. And uh, Cointreau and champagne, the two Cs. That was like palatable that that mixed everything <laughs> so that everybody could, could get, get some. some. So, you, you know, you'd have to, you'd learn to drink things right. like that, which were right. a little, uh, right. maybe a little different. And, you know, obviously the rum and Coke and all that. There are accounts, you read like diaries of, of soldiers and 
You know, in some situations, they were drunk pretty much the whole time. Not drunk, drunk. If you if you were like habitually drunk, you'd be sent to the rear. We can't use you. It, it, there didn't seem to be a lot of judgment, you know, right. because everybody knew the terror, and it was like if you could survive the terror, some people couldn't take it and had to do yeah. that. But tipsy all the time. So what? Right. You know, what are the consequences? You get killed either way. You might as well like dull your nerves a little bit. And so they're, you know, people passing the whiskey bottle around inside their tanks, uh, getting ready to drive up against uh, people shooting large cannons at them and stuff like that. Sure. I, I, mean, I would kind of take yeah. a swig. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of the, the idea of the Dutch courage. You yeah, know, the, exactly. The, you know, the, you know, Taking you know a shot mm-hmm. of Geneva you know yeah. before you went on. I mean, on it's the, that, that's the not for field. exceptional courage. That's no. for any courage. Right. <laughs> you know, that's it's... just to get you through the day. I mean, <laughs> it's really terrifying. You know, World War Two, but was so huge though that it hit the home fronts hard. Just as oh, just absolutely, as hard. and and I mean, you you see, you know, almost immediately, the distilleries are all you know forced to convert to making very high proof alcohol. In order to you know supply the army with all types of different mm-hmm. you know military you know, uh, necessities you know yeah for, it was used in making explosives for instance exactly yeah. I mean it goes into all types of things and some of the people are are making you know different types of the fermenting rooms are used to make penicillin and stuff mm-hmm. like that and you know I, I think at first people were very scared because it was it wasn't that much past prohibition right I mean we yeah. just gotten back alcohol in America and suddenly. You know, all the distilleries are being shut down to make you know uh, goods for the war. Yeah, and, right and when you need it. The War Production Board was very careful, like in the newspapers mm-hmm. and stuff. To I you know, found accounts, uh, you know, where they're very, you know, very cautious to remind people that like there were 550 million gallons of whiskey in the U.S., which they you know thought at the rate of consumption would last between somewhere between four to five years, which. I think they're probably overly optimistic yeah, there. Yeah, maybe a little. Um, and we soon, you know, we soon see like, you know, there are shortages in 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 whiskey, you know, and we get places oh, like, like pretty much right away. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, by you know, I think it's you know the the, you know, it's one of these crazy things. Almost two years after Pearl Harbor, we've like according to the New York Times, there are like twelve thousand liquor stores across the country go out of business. And they're expecting even more because there's just nothing to sell, you know. And or, or the stuff you can get is rum from the Caribbean, and right. you know Americans are still pretty like insular, and it's like I gotta drink this now. Or kind of like what goes on today with the yeah. sort of same shenanigans, where if you want a bottle of something really good, you're gonna have to buy a mm-hmm. couple of cases of something you don't want. And we see that with American whiskey being barely, you know heavily rationed by the distributors too, where yeah. they're pushing rum, they're pushing anything, tequila, whatever they can get. I think there's even like, you know, whiskeys being made in Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is being pushed in order to, you know, if you want that one bottle. There's a great autobiography by uh, this woman who called herself Dirty Helen. She was she ran a bar, a former madam who ran a bar in Milwaukee during the war, and she uh, drank Old Fitzgerald, uh, which was the good stuff, sure. and bonded Old Fitzgerald. And, to, and that's all she wanted to serve her customers. So she would get cases and cases of other whiskeys, like perfectly fine whiskeys, right. you know, uh, but to get that old Fitzgerald. And the others she would just give away. You know, it's <laughs> like, I don't want this stuff. I want the old Fitz. I mean, it's a hard thing, too, because you realize that, like, you know, because of Prohibition, the distillers were only up and running for a couple of years mm-hmm. before they have to shut down again. And whiskey, like any other aged product, you know, has to sit in a barrel for, you know. Yeah number of years before it matures. So even 
four or five years, just as we're getting back to like whiskey being on store shelves, fully mature, obviously World War II starts and once again, we can't make it. I mean, the consequences after World War II, all all they had was blended whiskey for years. And that kind of killed American whiskey. And we also see the proof, you know, we're, we're, you know, proof was at, you know, 100 or over 100, mm-hmm. you know, barrel and bond, you know, the standard that called for 100 proof. That comes down to, you know, 86, 90, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the lower down the to 80, 80 yeah. the, the lower the proof, obviously, you know, the more water is being yeah. added to the whiskey, yeah, yeah. the more you can make. And, you know, you can't go below 80, but that's, you know, they, they were mm-hmm. pulling it down to sort of try to increase supply. I mean, you see, you see vodka starting to come in and at Absolutely. first it's, you know, it's in it had been like uh, the kind of the underground spirit of the 1930s. Yeah. Vodka was for super hipsters only. Sure. And then during the war, okay, Russia's our ally. Woohoo! You know, let's uh, let's uh, drink Moscow mules, which in- invented during the war. Uh, Can be made of anything, right? Yeah. I mean, vodka. You, you sugarcane you know. vodka from Cuba is coming in in vast quantities, <laughs> and uh, whatever you whatever you can get your hands on, you can turn it into vodka, yeah. which is which is definitely uh, helpful. Yeah, and it's 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 like it's all over the the market by the end of the war. You know, there's a it's starting to to grow. Then it cuts down for a few years, then comes back. But uh, uh, once we run out of whiskey again, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and it's kind. Of, I mean, it sort of works. It's interesting how it works in you know uh, in, in simpatico. Like you have the soldiers and the sailors coming back from Europe mm-hmm. or Asia with you know they've tried all types of different alcohols. You know, their palates mm-hmm. have certainly a little bit more adventurous and then you get home and you now have all of these other spirits out of necessity have you know have flooded the liquor mm-hmm. stores because there is no whiskey to be had from from America and then even even Scotland I mean the the Scotch distilleries don't ever actually completely close down but it's close like you know it starts you know in 1937 they're producing 24 million gallons mm-hmm. of spirit and then you know 1939 it goes down to 13 and a half million and by 42, it's only 1.3 million gallons. And then 1943, thanks to the rationing of barley and, and mm-hmm. whiskey and just the shortage of workers, I mean, they're open, but they're making really a token bid. And and according to um, Dr. Uh, Nick Morgan at Diageo, the, their, uh, their in-house uh, historian, archivist, um, the price in stores nearly double to 25 mm-hmm. shillings which i imagine at the at that the was a lot of money back then really yeah. it was quite a yeah. quite a ransom so and the problem again with making scotch you know if you don't if you don't make any today you're not going to have any in you know 12. eight ten twelve years yeah, exactly that's going to make sure so i mean fortunately churchill obviously was not afraid of a big drink himself and probably trying through the war he, uh, he, he, he drank a considerable portion of the scotch output, <laughs> but um more champagne than anything. Sure, which sure. he made sure to lay in stocks as the, as the war began. Well, and and even before when he was running, you know, he worked in, you know, he was running the, you know, part of the British Navy during mm-hmm. during our prohibition. Yeah. And and the the U.S. government was trying to get him to enforce our prohibition no. rules to stop the rum running. And Churchill, you know, is, we can thank no. him for for making yeah. America wet because he refused to do it. He was like, That's, you know, why would I stop them? Yeah. That's not my problem. Is the wrong guy for the right. job. This is not these aren't <laughs> yeah. my rules. These aren't my rules. I, I can't get behind this no. uh, temperance movement. I'm not going to stop anyway. Fortunately again, he, you know, has the foresight to to give the Scotch industry barley starting in in 44 mm-hmm. a bigger share so that they can start you know, it, it sounds well, crazy. Well, Eng- England was using it. Britain was using it for for trade. You know, they were right. 
borrowing insane sums of money uh, from from America for armaments. Sure. And what did they have to give back? Right. Bases overseas, okay, well, if there's only so many bases you can use. Right. And after a while, we started capturing for them from the Germans and Japanese, right. so we didn't need the British to give them to us. And scotch. Scotch, yeah. You know, and uh, that's why the Pacific Fleet drank scotch, because right. it was available. It all went for export. I mean, of course, a lot of it ended on the on the uh, bottom of the Atlantic because right. of the, the, the submarine warfare. But, uh, the U-boats, yeah. Yeah, uh, some of it's still down there. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. There's a lot of foresight on his part because— you know, obviously, if you, you know, the post-war economy needed scotch as an mm-hmm. export is very important, but also jobs, too. I mean, getting these distillers up and running. And yeah, it's agricultural we, jobs. Yeah, it's, it's distilling jobs. You know, when, when soldiers came home, you know, yeah. they needed jobs. So. Yeah, you needed every industry running you could get running. Yeah. So, uh, it's also interesting in America, as you were saying before, you know, back home were, were pulled into the war effort, you know, whether they were making munitions yeah. or, or, you know, Marilyn, Mon- Marilyn Monroe, it turns out, was making like these tiny drones to you know that they were sending up or you know people rosie yeah, the river there, there, there are amazing pictures of uh uh of wartime pictures of, of some of the most glamorous young women imaginable like with welding masks <laughs> on like in in these beautiful hollywood right. shots practically right. you know assembling uh wiring bundles on right, on sure. b24 liberators and stuff like that and so it was a uh, Everybody was working, and everybody was partying afterwards, too. So, <laughs> And we see it in the distillery, too. Like, these mm-hmm. distillers are running 24 hours a day to keep mm-hmm. up with the war effort. And because so many, you know, the, the young men and, you know, even the middle-aged men and the old men were, mm-hmm. were at war, for the first time, really, you know, we get a lot of women, you know, in the distilleries, working right. distilleries, running, you know, jobs that weren't open to them. Also, African-Americans, you know, mm-hmm. were, were suddenly getting people – you know, being hired by distillers who, you know, historically had not been hired um, right. to, to run right. them, which is, you know, which, which really, I think, in many ways changes the, the I mean, face after of the, the war, they, it, things backtracked for a sure. while, but still people had a taste of that yeah. and had, you know, experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it, uh, it, started, it started a lot of change. I mean, wars always shake things up, but uh, World War II more than, more than any other. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the, the sheer scale of it. Because it ended with an unambiguous victory, uh, things like the South Pacific got romanticized. Yeah, you know, that sure. was the the most horrible place to fight. It was absolutely terrifying yeah. with you know septic infections everywhere sure. and you know death in the jungle. You can only imagine. But after yeah. after the war, it's like it was also there were also like people are thinking about the coconut trees and the blue yeah. skies and the uh, and the Pacific sands, and you start getting the tiki movement. You know, yeah. sort of. Giving the romantic side of of, of the tropics and uh, and also maybe the first time that, that a lot of Americans had had gone to that part oh, of the of world course, and of you know like you know now we take for granted you know going to Hawaii yeah. or other places you have all these soldiers and they all shipped through there they they were all in like new you know they were in New Guinea they were in the Solomon Islands they right. were in all all these all these tropical uh, tropical places and uh, yeah. you know, they sort of it seemed normal to them. Yeah. After a while, Trader Vic, uh, who started with the tropical stuff in the in the '30s, used to uh, read the newspapers. And whenever we we took a new island, he'd take all the extra rum that he couldn't serve, and he served a lot of rum, <laughs> and uh, and he'd uh, ship it to the latest island, you know, that that the troops right. had taken. So suddenly there'd be like uh, you know 28 cases of rum, courtesy of Trader Vic. For for, for the uh, the enlisted men's mess right. and the officers' mess and uh, soldiers would send stuff in return and if you go to the uh, 
I mean, the original Trader Vic's is gone, but they're in Emeryville, California, across from across the bay from San Francisco. They have the one where they took all the stuff from the original. Oh, yeah. And there's still a, a Japanese Arasaka rifle hanging over the bar wow. with bayonet uh, that yeah. came from one of those islands. Somebody, you know, sent it back right. to the bar, and there's a bunch of stuff like that. And it's like, it's all tropical and fun, and then you see that, and it's like, oh, right. maybe this isn't quite right. so much fun. You remember. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, there, it, was a, there was a cost for all this. It becomes very sanitized, you know, in the yeah. 50s. You know, yeah. you get, and or even, you know, the Rum and Coke song, you know, you have mm-hmm. the... You know, that famous, you know... You got uh, the Andrews sisters singing it. Right. It was different from, from the Caribbeans who were right. singing, you know, yeah, the, the Trinidadian guy. I can't remember what, who, who it was, the uh, guy from Trinidad who wrote it, but it was a little bit saltier. Yeah. <laughs> but even, even theirs, it's funny. You have these, yeah. you know, the, the Minnesota, you know, Andrews sisters singing about rum and coke, and, you know, it becomes a sensation. And mm-hmm. I think it also helps, you know, things, you know, rum really take off in America. And yeah. obviously solidifies coca-cola's place and you know mm-hmm. in, in soldiers hearts and, you know americans hearts meanwhile uh, uh back in europe there's there's no coca-cola no you know in germany they're drinking just potato schnapps and uh, they get strangled more and more uh, hidden stocks that they'd captured in their victory years are, are getting depleted at a furious rate and you know the russians are closing in uh, it's uh, just extraordinarily grim and you know deservedly so but things that the germans issued to drink uh were got increasingly worse. On the other hand, they had lots of pills. There's a, right. there's a recent book about this. Uh, yeah. They took a lot of speed. Yeah. So they, maybe it wasn't all drinking. Uh, right, no, sure. You see pictures uh, from, the Germans took a lot of photographs. Uh, photography had been a big craze in Germany in the, in the, between the wars. And there are just these absolutely shattering p- pictures you see of like these guys standing there like, you know, with bandages on the swigging out of the bottle as, as they're, you know, the dead are piled around yeah. them. And it's like, you know, the consequences yeah. of, uh, of, of starting that war were, uh, were, were visited back on them a thousandfold and, and deservedly so. But uh, uh, nonetheless, it's, uh, it's pretty grim to watch. Well, and I think they were, you know, they're very concerned with, you know, uh, taking um, all of the stocks from cognac and champagne. Yeah. I mean, that was... I think one of their, you know, their early moves when they had rolled mm-hmm. across the Maginot Line that they were going. Yeah, they stripped everything bare. <laughs> yeah, and sent it all back yeah, um, or, it all or back. bought it mm-hmm. for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's every once in a while you can see on eBay uh, empty cognac bottles with uh, for sale with uh, German uh, stamps on the labels, you know, and it's like, wow, they just, they just took that stuff. Yeah. Of course, the French hid all the good stuff. It was imperative to hide as much stock as you could. But Napoleon always said, you know, that... that Army travels on its stomach, yeah. right, and that the, the supply lines are always the most important thing, you know, to to keep armies supplied. And you know, I think it, especially as we go into the, you know, the, this modern era, that mm-hmm. it's it's not just the food, but also the the drinks too. That that yeah, certainly, that, uh, especially in when it's just total warfare. You know, it's like how, how yeah. else to get through the day? Yeah, anything to keep you going is is uh, welcome. Yeah. No, not welcome is needed. Yeah, it doesn't matter the long term consequences. The you know, long term consequences is you're probably you're probably going to be yeah. dead anyway. So, yeah. you know, you're not worried about uh, alcoholism. You're not yeah. worried about uh, uh, calories. Calories. You're not worried that, about that. anything. It's just yeah. drink. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, and and we see that you know we you know we talked a little bit in in the last episode about the old Miami bar in, in Detroit, mm-hmm. but we also see. On the home front, you know, these sort of the rise of the veterans bar, you know, yeah. kind of also like 
you know, sort of yeah, the VFWs also are right. everywhere with their bar. You know, yeah, and, and sure. Partly, it's you know, you need you need a shared experience there, yeah. and uh, you need somewhere where you can uh, you can talk this over without yeah. having to explain the realities of the situation sure. to some non-server st- yeah. sitting next to you, and uh, so yeah, sort of a safe I mean, space it, to yeah, uh, safe space exactly. It's a fascinating time period. The ramifications, you know, we still feel today in terms of what we drink. For me, it's uh, it's what led to uh, vodka knocking whiskey out was the fact that because we had such low stocks of aged whiskey after the war, uh, people chose to blend it with neutral spirits and send it out. So it was a very yeah. light whiskey. It was hard yeah. to, for that to compete. You know, it was like whiskey competing with other drinks with one hand tied behind its back. Yeah, absolutely. It was watery. It was thin. It wasn't very appealing. It lacked the texture of whiskey. Canadian whiskey was better because uh, they didn't use neutral spirits. They used an aged grain spirit to, right. for their, in their blends, so it had a little more richness. So it wiped out all this stuff. But at the same time, vodka was even lighter still and didn't have that kind of watered-down whiskey taste. It right. was just clean. And no, people, so people preferred that yeah, eventually. And, and sort of as we get into the atomic age, like I think yeah. people wanted things that were new and you streamlined. Know, streamlined, and they wanted, yeah. you know, the different mixes. Forget sour mix from scratch. They wanted well, all the technology from the war and packaging food. Uh, absolutely. Was, turned uh, weaponized against the dom- the home front, so <laughs> right. to speak. You know, everything is frozen, right. everything is preserved, everything is... Uh, Aluminum, we yeah. get all these things that are, all the materials that were used or something. I, ha- I have a wonderful cocktail shaker made in, I think, Illinois in the late 1940s, clearly by a metal stamping company that had been making, like, parts of B-29s sure. or something. It's amazingly well machined. It's got, like, a disc on top with a hole in it that, that you turn and it clicks. Wow to open it and then pour everything out. But the problem is it's made from aluminum and you can't uh, put citrus in anything with aluminum. <laughs> so it's absolutely useless for shaking cocktails right. unless you're shaking martinis, but you don't shake a martini. Right. Right. So what the hell do you do with it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it is beautiful, though. Right. I mean, it's a beautiful piece of engineering. It's just not practical. Also hard probably to, like, take it apart, too, because it— Oh, you, you, you need a screwdriver. Yeah. It's got, it's got like gaskets. Wow, that's yeah, it's complicated. It's got a built-in strainer. It's got all kinds of stuff. Amazing. And it, it's absolutely beautifully made. But you know, it shows you the technology was ahead yeah. of the, the 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 actual use. Yeah. Well, and I think you know, all over we you know a lot of those factories that were making munitions or other things. Yeah. You know, start to make you know shot glass sets. You know. Oh, you everything. Know, yeah. From you know Japan, from Germany, and mm-hmm. America, you see all of these. You know, clearly, you know, factories that had once been turning out, you know, bullets are now making, you know, shot glasses yeah. that look very similar to mm-hmm. bullets. Using um, the same technology. Right, exactly. You know, um, exactly. Yeah, you start to see the the German and Japanese factories that weren't blown up, at least, you know, they're trying to recoup their, uh, or something. use their, yeah. their expertise. But uh, meanwhile, in America, we're making every consumer good imaginable. Right. In the 50s, it's just, uh, it's this, this flood. I mean, the production had been so concentrated yeah. and streamlined well and i think you're right i mean like you know for for so many years the american whiskey industry is playing catch-up you yeah. know i mean really through the i'd say up until like the mid 50s like you know they're trying to put out whatever they possibly can yeah. so it's very young whiskey or it's blended by the time they get really good old whiskey nobody cares anymore yeah you know I mean, in the 60s and 70s when american whiskey was yeah. uh, really well made yeah. it was not cool anymore yeah it, it had kind of ruined its reputation I, scotch yeah. was the good stuff 
Right. And the I Scotch think, held the line. And again, I think also, you know, a lot of the, the soldiers coming back, you know, they yeah. wanted the smoother Scotch, you know, the blends, you know, you really start yeah. to see things like Chivas Regal and Cuddy Sark yeah. and Dewar's really kind of come into their own And you in, get in the smoother era. Canadian whiskeys. American blended whiskey is something we don't experience really anymore. No, thankfully. Thankfully. I, I used to drink it as, yeah. a, as a youth when it was, yeah, uh, sure. uh, you know, Two dollars uh, right. for for a pint, <laughs> something like that, uh, and it was pretty bad. Yeah, you know, Fleischmann's and things yeah, like that. Sure. That was not that was not tasty whiskey, but well, I mean, it, you know, sort of GI Joe becomes the man in the gray flannel suit. Yeah, you know? I mean, he comes home and you know he wants he wants something better than that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what's he? What, he's drinking martinis. Yeah, but his martinis have no vermouth in them. Right. Sure. You know, it's tiki like tiki drinks. Yeah, yeah, the tiki drinks are paralyzingly strong. You know, they come in in 24-ounce mugs, and they've got four or five ounces of rum in them. Sure. And, you know, that's what they're, they're – you know, there's a traumatized generation there. Yeah. They didn't have – they didn't talk about things like no. post-traumatic stress. No. But, but for the man in the gray flannel suit is all about that, or yeah. best years of our lives, an amazing sure. film, you know, and the, 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 the trauma and surviving it and coming back. Uh, the 50s is uh, the right. drinks are as strong as they can possibly be. And then you come you come right up until, you know, it's the, the Korean War is that many years after. No, and, and, and you have um, Louis Rosenstiel, who's running Shenley mm-hmm. at the time, you know, thinks, okay, you know, what happened with World War II? We had it closed down. We couldn't yeah. make anything. So before the war, he, he owned a tremendous number of distilleries, whiskey distilleries. So he ramps up production all across America, you know, making rye, right? Or they they have it all, like warehouses just full. And of course, we go to war, you know, which, well, technically, I guess, Korea, the Korean War is not a a police action. It's a police action. Um, But the distilleries don't actually ever have to shut down, and the war isn't as long as Mm -hmm. at least Rosensteel. Yeah, and it's nowhere near a total war. So, you know, he suddenly, you know, he's all these warehouses full of. Of, of whiskey and and the taxes are going to come due mm-hmm. soon because the the government considers it mature whiskey. Mm-hmm. So what does you know any American businessman in the 20th century do? He uh, lobbies hard um, through you know all of his connections mm-hmm. in the White House and in the in Washington D.C. and J. Edgar Hoover and you know he he gets the government <laughs> to change the definition of whiskey. So that it's allowed to mature for a longer period of time in the warehouse before taxes are mm-hmm. due, and most importantly, that's retroactive. So he doesn't actually have to pay a tax bill on his whiskey. But that kind of opens the door to yeah. older American whiskeys, which traditionally weren't sold because you'd have to pay tax and still yeah, they then were, lose they were angel a specialty share. Thing. They were, right. I mean, why would you ever yeah. do that? I mean, would you just yeah. it was a money loser. You so do, you do it like special bottlings. Yeah. You know, and but that's. But yeah, it's, and they were you know no doubt extremely expensive because yeah. of the costs associated yeah. with them. And then, but really, like you know, we look at today. You know, the the focus is on ever older whiskeys, and you know, Rosenstiel and his you know his mm-hmm. gamble on the Korean War. Sort of opens the door for this new generation of yeah, but it kind of got it kind of went back and bit him on the ass sure. because he couldn't sell it even in those in sure. between years and sure. by the end of the fifties there there was a glut of, of oh absolutely prices we, were dropping we definitely see like this this marketing push by him though to like yeah. you know trying to get people to drink older whiskey and you know yeah and it wasn't just this. him also it was oh, like Publicer sure. with uh, yeah. Rittenhouse uh, you know there were there were some of the other companies had these old whiskeys on the uh, on the market by the end of the 50s because they had absolutely. all kind of followed Rosenstiel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the market is glutted. Nobody wants eight-year-old rye in 1958. Right. Nobody's drinking rye. 
I mean, it's an interesting thing. You 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 get you know this weird juxtaposition where mm-hmm. this this gamble, you know, at the time may not have may yeah. not have come in, but but now we're certainly reaping the benefits. Yeah, I think that concludes another episode of Life Behind Bars. Thank you for listening and uh, cheers. cheers.